Hi, all. Thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we are joined by Dr. Sanjay Dadamani. He is the co-founder and CEO of Upstream. And we almost had to cancel this interview because you weren't feeling well. So we are really appreciative that you are here feeling well and then also able to still tell us about the important work that you're doing at Upstream. So with that, why don't you tell us about the realization that you had while you were preparing for this interview and then a little bit about what Upstream does. Absolutely, Stephanie and Apoorv, thank you for inviting me, having me on. It's been as sick as a dog. I'm just so glad for the power of modern medication. Uh, started all of this uh, yesterday and it's incredible how quickly you can recover and improve, uh, although I'm holding at home now for the next uh, at least five, six days. Uh, I will say it just kind of uh, made me realize how efficient and quickly I could get access to care and access to medications with a quick telemedicine visit with my physician, having uh, medications ordered, even having a click of a button on my cell phone to press the delivery option versus you know having my wife to, to go out and quickly pick it up and for me to be able to take inhalers and other things to quickly get better. But uh, just realized that the patients who we represent, who we work with, are struggling. They're older, sicker, uh, frail elderly patients who have multiple chronic conditions. They have challenges with you know, multiple medications, multiple physicians, a lot of fragmentation. There's uncoordinated care. They receive phone calls from multiple people, whether it's a call center, whether it's a um, you know, specialty uh, medication, whether it's a refill or renewal of their mail order, and you know, it leaves them incredibly uh, challenged. And so when they get sick, you know, they oftentimes struggle with being able to uh, alert their physician. They're not even sure who to talk to. And our work has been so much around restoring the primacy of primary care physicians to really be the quarterback of uh, their care. And, and so it just, I think it opened my eyes even more sensitized uh, to, to the challenges they face. It's amazing, Sanjay, you, in, in kind of like one sentence, you just laid out uh, uh, the stark reality of what healthcare often is for us with, in terms of all the challenges that a individual patient can face. And, and yet uh, we breathe a sigh of relief because we think you've got a solution out there. How would upstream change that, right? So we already have primary care physicians. They're already trying to care for these patients. What is it that they could now do differently? Uh, for example, in the situation that you were in, you know, would, they be, would your patients be able to get care faster? Uh, would they be able to get seen faster? You know, maybe you can guide us through that a little bit. The vast majority of uh, US primary care physicians don't see one segment of the population. They see all comers. And that means that it's oftentimes difficult uh, to tease out who are those patients who are most vulnerable, who need the extra care, the extra resources, and the extra connectivity. When we work with practices, we identify uh, patients who are these older, sicker patients with medical complexity on multiple medications and we develop a, a joint working list, what we call a nominated patient list. And that allows the physicians to at least one recognize, you know, in an electronic format that, you know, these patients need special attention. We then outreach uh, with our uh, clinical uh, teams, it really led by a pharmacist, since a lot of these problems are related to 
medication, uh, lack of whether it's adherence to medications, optimization of the right medications, because at the end of the day, you know, simply visiting the doctor doesn't cure you of all your ills, right? So what it is what you do, whether it's you're continuously, you know, adhering to a medication regimen, uh, you know, improving uh, on that or making adjustments between visits. And so that's having that type of resource. So it's this combination of technology, combination of clinical, where we are sometimes the, you know, the peer provider within the uh, primary care practice at the point of care. And then uh, in terms of the overall financial, because a lot of these uh, very um, great resources and tools are also very expensive. And so you can't do some of this work in a purely fee-for-service environment. People have been talking for a long time about value-based care, but it is uh, not in sort of an early sort of savings model that you can then front a lot of these investments. You really need to go into the other end, jump into the deep end of the pool in terms of full risk or taking full financial uh, opportunity to then, or total cost of care, to then reallocate the dollars to support the uh, tools, the infrastructure, the technology, the clinical teams. And many of these practices don't have those kind of resources, especially uh, some of the smaller independent practices, uh, you know, you'd be lucky to have one or two medical assistants, far let alone nurses and, and pharmacists in each of their offices. So that's what we do. And it's been, uh, I think, uh, a really uh, successful collaborative journey with physicians. We started this process out in North Carolina and we're now expanding across other states. What are some of the results that you've seen from these primary care providers that you're working with whenever you can handle this all for them and also give them the leads on what patients need this care and their attention the most? Yeah, I very humbly submit that we don't handle uh, all of it. We collaborate with them to make it easier. But it is true that a lot of the clinical decision-making is what's their expertise as well as you know, establishing and maintaining the relationship and managing uh, acute situations where you know, there's a sudden deterioration. But it's all of the steps that they would have otherwise considered administration, whether it's uh, closing care gaps, ordering those mammograms and uh, colonoscopies and improving A1Cs and consistently forming a, a therapeutic workup and, and you know, working that through on a very consistent basis. That's the work of coordination of care. CMS in their uh, you know, rightful thinking recognize that that needs to be reimbursed in a different way. And we do that through care coordination or CCM services. And so we bolster on those services into those practices so that they can have the resources, the people, the platform to essentially run that care management program from within their own practice. They feel very proud. It, de, uh, I think, declutters a lot of their work. It gives them freedom to either see more patients, broaden their panel. As you know, in America, we do face a crisis in terms of the shortage of primary care doctors. We've had many different approaches, telemedicine, increasing mid-level providers, and we support all of those. But in addition to that, having, I think, a physician who can be optimal in their license and in optimal in terms of their, the right size of their panel means that we can shift them up to be even more competitive, even more broader by having the right resources within the practice. And one of the biggest things affecting doctors today, burnout. 
And uh, this is one of those, I think, uh, really appealing uh, value propositions to them because it directly tackles the burnout that they have to deal with. Never again do they have to keep dealing with recurrent calls from all the retail pharmacies or from the nursing homes and the hospitals discharging patients. You've got somebody who's a clinician sitting side by side working through all of those things as they come in. Is that what deters people from practicing primary care? The fact that it can be a battle to make it a sustainable practice when you have so many things to do? It's a good question, Stephanie. You know, I'm a clinical cardiologist. I spent a lot of time in heart failure. But because of the fact that I was taking care of a 1% of the patient population with you know, advanced cardiac disease and 99% were my colleagues in primary care, I became very sensitive to the work they do. They don't have the resources that hospitals have, for example. They don't have the, um, the support. And oftentimes they're left fending for themselves with you know, uh, a lot of challenges that face them in the community. And they have to be you know, jack of all in that setting, which is then difficult to medically optimize patients to the levels that they need in terms of having the right professionals supporting them. So there becomes professional isolation, becomes uh, much harder to practice, and hasn't been also as financially rewarding. In a total cost of care model, we're moving from the traditional 3% of the total spend to primary care allocation to increasing that to 5 and 6% so that there's more dollars for primary care physicians within what one to improve the care for their patients, two, to be personally rewarded, and three, to support the sustainability of all these programs into the future. So this is a mission uh, more than it is you know, a company in that we need to democratize value-based care for the average primary care doctor who's been otherwise locked out of uh, you know, being in a full risk or uh, in a total cost of care model. So it aligns very much with the goals of where we're going in value-based care in the country, but there hasn't been a, uh, what I would say is a soup to nut solution. It's been much more targeted where, hey, we'll help you on the technology piece, or here we have another you know, tool or resource. Here we've come in recognizing these three very important pillars with sort of a fourth underlay to it. And those three pillars are the clinical, at the point of care, the financial, so that we create the right levels of incentives and support and resources, and then the technological. And then the underpinning to us is having very deep and advanced expertise in government and regulatory programs so that we're on the right side of the law, we're you know, following stark and anti-kickback, but we're also, uh, I think, uh, appropriately uh, enabling these physicians to be successful in the goals of value-based care. Sanjay, this is, there's a lot that you said there. Maybe I'm wondering if we can unpack it a little bit for our audience. It's, it's amazing what you're doing for value-based care, a journey that the uh, country has been on for so long, yet it feels like at the same time it's, it's going uh, slowly maybe. Uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's uh, succeeding in as many areas that it could be. Uh, what is it that, that prevents the primary care physicians from actually embarking on this journey? Uh, and, and why do they need an upstream health to kind of come alongside and, and support them? Do you have offered the contracting vehicles or is it because you have a particular technology um, or is there some, some other aspect that's ultimately limiting you know, the scaling of this through the practices themselves? Great question, Apoorva, and I want to be, be clear. It's not just upstream. There are many great companies doing work in value-based care. We are one of them. 
But I think we've been very sensitive to what are the challenges, the pain points, because some entities, you know, select the very advanced, very mature practices who just are a little risk averse. They don't want to put up the reserve capital or they may not have that available to them to participate in an advanced payment model. But the, the, the others, it's not just about not having the finances or being risk averse. It's about even being able to participate where they're on the hamster wheel. They have no way of, you know, supplying the kind of, uh, you know, requirements and, you know, closing gaps in the same way or having the capabilities of the infrastructure. Then comes in technology like great analytics platforms that, you know, they can be harnessed into. And then what do they do? They tell them what to do. They tell them, these are your patients who are struggling. These are the gaps that need to be closed. These are, you know, some of the stars and heatest measures that are, you know, uh, important for this Medicare Advantage plan. But it, again, doesn't give them, you know, a way of closing those gaps. So recognizing that we embedded our clinicians into the point of care. We let out with pharmacists some of the most difficult to close heatest measures that go into the CMS stars performance in Medicare Advantage are these medication related stars measures. And so getting to five stars on those is extremely difficult for them, but extremely easy for us because that is our focus. That's our bread and butter. So when we come in and collaborate with them, we almost remove that off their plate so that they can be freed up and we free them up to do what they want to do best, which is you know, what they love to do, which is care mm -hmm. for patients. So much of what we're trying to do, Sanjay, and kind of like your your mission actually resonates deeply with me because uh, so much of what we're trying to do, both Stephanie and I, through this platform and uh, in my day job as uh, with Guidehouse con uh, Consulting, is actually trying to figure out how we relieve that burden off of the clinicians because they are struggling. Uh, they're they're ultimately uh, overwhelmed, and uh, many of them are getting disengaged and burnt out. And Stephanie and I have had many guests who've come on here and talked about that. Uh, so it's intriguing to me that that's kind of where you feel your solution offering is at. Uh, have you, I mean, you may not have data at a high level because I know how hard it is to get there, but do you have some uh, examples or some anecdotes of physicians that you think have really been impacted in that way? I think it would be very helpful for our audience to hear about that. Sure, happy to share. Let me start by our own employees because we employ right now where I think 260 employees were growing to like five, 600 employees within the next few months. Our own employees, we have such amazing stories they share with us every day. We had one recent employee who I think sent back uh, in a uh, survey. They said that uh, before they joined Upstream, they were ready to completely get out of healthcare and do something else, go back into retail. And that, uh, you know, the, the very sort of uh, alignment of the mission and the way in which they could spend time with patients in an unrushed fashion was so rewarding to them. We've had pharmacists who said, we wanna stop counting to 30 behind a counter and we wanna go and work with patients. When you see a pharmacist who's um, in a retail pharmacy and I have tremendous respect for them, they don't have the ICD-10 uh, codes. They don't know what the patients actually has in you know, sort of their background and the comorbidities. Maybe they'll be lucky enough to see the patient and then quickly determine whether there's morbid obesity or some other you know, based on the medications, some other concomitant conditions, but they're largely flying blind. It's this left arm knowing that, you know, these are the conditions the patient has doing an extensive workup, consolidating that plan, 
appropriately then, you know, uh, capturing all of those missed, uh, you know, diagnoses and, and, and accurately putting together, not just is there a financial implication that, you know, uh, has now come under scrutiny uh, called risk adjustment, but this whole notion that you, you need to accurately capture the uh, underlying conditions so that you can then medically optimize one by one, either the patient has it or not. And so people often think about this as just sort of, you know, max your opportunity. For us, there's even the other way, which is we have some patients who we're actually de-prescribing. We're getting them off medications that they've been on for years. They have no idea where, why they're on it. We've taken patients after six, seven years off their tamoxifen where they should have, you know, ended it at five years. We're taking patients off their um, PPIs, these proton pump inhibitors, where they had, you know, um, their, their GI symptoms, you know, cured like three, four years ago. And there are these resultant, you know, risks to being on medications you don't need to be on. So I think it's the full end of the spectrum of providing that level of support to patients. But this, this concept of what is it that we bring that patients and you know, physicians appreciate, but even our own employees in terms of being so engaged with the care model in terms of you know, being there in the practice, working side by side with a physician in, you know, uh, in, a, in a clinical environment that's incredibly rewarding. I mean, there's something to be said about you know, taking care of patients. It's just an incredible uh, feeling. You know, being, being a doctor, I, I miss you know, being there with patients directly. So Sanjay, uh, again, hats off to you for everything that you're accomplishing. When, when you and I had spoken earlier pr- prior to this uh, interview, actually, you had commented that it was so, you were so gratified that, you know, we were well, do, having a platform like this where we could get the message out of value-based care and how it's working. And yet you, you were talking to me about how concerning it is that uh, within the literature, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's growing sense of, oh, value-based care isn't working. Maybe we should, we need to, you know, retrench or do something else. Uh, and yet it clearly is working in many areas. So maybe with, with this kind of final shot I have uh, at engaging with you is, can you help us think through, you know, it, where it is working and why it may not be, you know, evident, you know, in a broader way, or are we just studying it the wrong way? And kind of like, what is the promise of value-based care that you think a model like yours can deliver? Let me start at the patient level, and then let me go to the community level, and let me go to the federal level. At the patient level, we had a woman who had morbid obesity, who was turned away for a renal transplant, who has been struggling and totally disenchanted by healthcare. The very fact that she got kidney failure was as a result of a medication that her doctor prescribed for her, which was an appropriate medication. But again, I don't know where the ball was dropped, but the reality is is she was on dialysis. And uh, at some point, she just stopped taking anyone's calls, so the transplant center dropped her. In we come working with her primary care doctor, going and attending in her home, working with her to getting her to the visits, reestablishing the connectivity with the specialist, Lo and behold, three weeks ago, she got her kidney transplant. So we were delighted that, you know, this whole concept of how do we function and how do we actually serve as this bridge between the primary care doctor, the specialist, the advanced health system that did the the transplant for her. And, you know, in the process, she lost 40 pounds and got to goal with her weight. Her diabetes was near eliminated. 
She's now on her transplant medications in a perfect time where our pharmacist is supporting her so that she's adherent to these medications because now this very valuable kidney has to sustain for years to come for her. So that's the patient level. On the practice level, we have seen not only burnout, but disenchantment and the provider at the primary care level almost throwing their hands up saying, you just keep throwing more and more at me without the resources, expecting that there's a promise of maybe money one day to be made a year later, where, you know, uh, but you need today to be able to, to, you know, close these gaps, improve care, and there's a whole list of deliverables. Technology has only partially solved that. It's exposed the problem and I think, you know, organized it in such a way that you can at least, you know, go off. But inbox medicine was not what physicians were trained for. So coming in to support them in those goals, closing those gaps, working with the technology, you know, applying that at the point of care, that's what essentially we've been up to. And, and that means more dollars restored into their pockets in a concurrent way. That's our incentive model. We call it GAPQ. It's guaranteed advanced payment for quality that we're paying in, you know, every month as opposed to waiting for one day getting potentially paid. And then finally, at the federal level, Medicare Advantage, one day it's a good guy, one day it's a bad guy. There's been tremendous growth. The consumers love it. There's great, greater, greater growth there. But there's this question, is there overpayments? There's a question of, you know, uh, should we just restore, uh, you know, uh, to, to Medicare fee for service or Medicare for all? You know, where do markets come into this? And then private equity, are they good guys, bad guys? Health systems, they've been consolidating. Look at the news from yesterday in terms of you know, mass consolidation literally across the country in terms of health systems. Is that lowering healthcare costs? Is that actually moving more dollars into primary care? Is that actually creating the right, what I would call a safety net for patients addressing health equity and so on? So I think at the federal level, they've uh, you know, uh, not just lost their way, they've uh, I think need to be uh, have wonderful proof points that value-based care exists. It's not just for you know the few elite uh, that you know are nationally renowned. It can be scalable. It needs the right levels of support and infrastructure. We shouldn't give up on this. We've now been ten years into this. There have been many promising uh, things. NACOS has put out on how ACOs have improved quality and you know reduced uh, costs. But there's even more we can do. And I think we have uh, found that, you know, we're very scalable and there are others who can do this as well. And we need to push forward at like, uh, you know, continued speed to get there in 2030. I am very confident we're going to be and very optimistic that value-based care is here to stay and that we'll see ups and downs and a little noise in the background. But I think consumers recognize the benefit, physicians get off the hamster wheel and actually end up being, you know, rewarded and enjoy, I, I think, caring for patients. And, you know, in the end, the country wins. I think it's fascinating that you were talking about how patients are getting off of their medicines just because people are able to pay closer attention because these physicians aren't so overburdened with all of these tasks that they have to do. So, it's interesting that by complying to their medication and being more mindful, these patients are ultimately getting off of their medication, which is allowing pay, uh, physicians to have more free time and able to focus on the other people who need help. So you're kind of welling up the population for lack of a better term. And so what does this look like 
in, you know, you said 2030 value-based care is here to stay and we're finally past that marker, but what does this look like long-term for you? Does this look like seniors living longer? Does it look like them, you know, maybe having less medication? How does this transform? Because it sounds like it has a huge impact. I want to be very clear and careful here. There are patients who have a total lack of access to even the right medications who are struggling, who are non-compliant, not because, uh, you know, because they have bills to pay, they're having to choose, there's, you know, poverty, there's medical debt, there's, uh, you know, uh, access issues that they're dealing with, and then they have multiple chronic conditions. So those patients definitely need medical optimization where they may need more medications, but they may need the right medications at the right doses. So it's really on you know, safety, it's on titration, it's on elimination, it's on medication adherence. There's a whole optimization there, but there are other patients who I think de-prescribing is equally an important thing on getting them off of medications that they don't need. The broader thing is that, you know, why are we doing this work? We want patients to live longer, healthier, happier lives. And that healthcare for us is a state of independence. It's independence for the patients, for the families who are burdened. We have, I think, 20% of the US population caring for a loved one and expending 40 hours of their time per you know, week for, for patients. And so, you know, as the baby boomers age, as we have more and more uh, you know, patients you know, who are older, sicker, we have to do a far more effective job so that they can achieve those goals of independence uh, in terms of their living in, and more happiness. But physicians too need to be better supported to manage these patients with medical complexity. One, it frees up their time, they can get to see more patients. They are themselves instruments of care in the community that they serve. They also grow older with the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for being here and sharing this. It sounds like you're doing amazing work and I look forward to all that you're going to continue doing. Thanks so much, Stephanie and Poor. Uh, really enjoyed this and I'm going to go head back to bed now after this, but I uh, enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you. You're such a trooper, Sanjay. Thank you for joining us and for sharing these uh, incredible stories of success. Thank you. Take care. All the best. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.